Welcome to the Hobcast, a weekly podcast from Hobeck Books, an independent publisher of thrillers, crime and suspense novels. Each week we'll take you behind the scenes of what we do, the challenges and the triumphs, the bumps and troughs of building a new creative business in this pandemic world. We'll hear from the people who make all this possible, the authors, cover designers and editors, and we'll have expert insights from our guest star interviews. Nothing is off the agenda on the Hopcast from Hobeck Books, as we combine trad values and an indie spirit. Hello. Hello, and welcome again to the Hobcast, episode number 35, I believe. Yes, I think it is 35, yeah. <laughs> I say that every week as if I don't know. I know, and you always expect me to know, and I think, is it? Yes, I'm sure it is, I'm sure it is. Welcome to the show, and this week's guest on the Hobcast book show is Brian Price, who is another Hobeck author with his debut crime novel, published by us later this week in fact Tuesday the what would it be 14th 14th of September Fatal Trade Fatal Trade the name of the book it's fantastic but of course Brian is also well widely known in crime circles for his scientific expertise so we'll delve into that a little bit later now this is not the most pristine audio environment we've ever (laughs) used before no but it's one of my favorite places that I used to come to as a child and that is <laughs> Nutsford Services on the M6 and uh, the northbound traffic thundering underneath us. And I'll get excited if we see any sort of VW Combi vans, which are my favourites. And I, I sort of saw one just a moment ago, but um, I'll get very excited. But we are staring down the, the, the driver's throats as they thunder underneath us as we make our way back from a little jaunt north to see one of our authors, Ollie Jarvis. Yeah, so uh, we had coffee in Ollie Jarvis's garden this morning, didn't we? And uh, we were d- um, visiting him because we delivered uh, the rest of his advanced copies of uh, The Genesis Inquiry, which is due in October, publishing in October. So that was uh, one reason I went to see family as well. So that, that's been our Sunday uh, after another busy week. But let's do the introductions properly. The Hopcast Book Show is from Hobet Books, UK independent publishers of the following genres. Thrillers. Crime. Mystery. Suspense. Did you see what I did there? I was speaking the cars. Yeah, that was really good, yeah. yeah it's got the, what's the Doppler effect, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and we've just been watching the F1, so if you haven't seen the result, uh, <laughs> Lewis and Max crashed into each other, uh, which is all very dramatic, and no doubt your, your boys will be banging on about it for the rest of the week. Is Max for Stafford okay? He's fine. He crashed into Lewis. It's all his fault as far as I can tell. Lewis Hastings is writing a book. He can't be in a crash. Lewis Hamilton. Oh, Hamilton. Yeah, don't worry about that. (laughs) And we're still flush with the corporate success of Emma Raducanu winning the US Open, which we stayed up most of the week, including four in the morning for a (laughs) semi-final to watch. What an astonishing achievement. So congratulations to her. Let's talk about news, though, in the publishing world. Uh, yes, yeah, so um, I suppose this, is, this isn't just a publishing world um, news item that caught my eye. It's about the HG drivers and just the issues with supply. And um, this is affecting the publishing industry as well because um, obviously people are ordering books and they're not getting books quick, as quick as they used to because the, the, the drivers can't drive the books quick enough. Well, there's not enough drivers to drive the books. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, if you're going to favour... F- 
one product over another. It's going to be fuel and food yeah. over over books, really. And my concern is, will this affect printing schedules as well? Because, um, you know, our, some of our books are printed um, in Milton Keynes. Some of them are now being printed in Suffolk. Um, so, you know, they have to be transported to the various bookshops and to us as well. I'm, I've got this element of concern about this, that this will affect us as well. Yeah, I mean, you know, it tends to downwash into our world too, even though we're obviously not as reliant on big print runs as the major publishers and indeed the major bookshops. So it is a concern, that's for sure. Um, when has a book signing cost £40 million? Um, I'm going to guess, uh, I don't know, J.K. Rowling or Richard Osman, someone like that? <laughs> well, no. <laughs> this week, the fifth and final test between England and India was called off due to be played at Old Trafford in Manchester uh, starting a couple of days ago and it got called off because four members of the Indian management and backroom staff caught Covid including Ravi Shastri, the coach and uh, it's now thought, or at least that's one theory being put forward, that the whole team and all the backroom staff went to Ravi Shastri's book launch (laughs) and 150 members of the public also attended, there were no covid protocols whatsoever and so it could be i mean the cost of the loss of this match to english cricket is about 40 million quid uh huge disaster for lancashire county cricket club for all the suppliers the beer suppliers the food suppliers it's just horrendous well it's sort of the ripple effect isn't it of something like this that it, it you know you wouldn't have, you wouldn't think so much about the people who've taken time off work and like you say that you know suppliers are all the the food and the drink that the, and, and hotels as well all that sort of thing it's all just gone yeah because uh, the players although they didn't pos- test positive were concerned that uh, because the team's physios had tested positive they were getting a catch it basically and then they would be stuck in this country for a few days extra <laughs> as well concern, yeah, yeah and they've got to start playing the, Indo- uh, the Indian Premier League which is vastly lucrative mm. tournament uh, in five days time anyway so that is probably the world's most expensive book launch. Yes. So yeah, I suppose we've got three items in you, haven't we? Britain winning <laughs> U.S. Open female singles and <laughs> something about cricket and um, the drivers. Interesting thing with Emma Raducanu. I read one of the articles. I mean, I've been obsessed with reading anything about her the last week or so. Um, that she's shelving plans to go to university oh, really? for now. Yeah, because she was lining up. She wants to be a barrister. I didn't know that. That's actually quite interesting. Yeah. Um, well, obviously, she, she's, she's got the uh, two A-levels. She uh, got fantastic grades in uh, earlier in the summer and was lining up to go to university to study law. But she's now a millionaireess with um, essentially almost unlimited earning power in terms of sponsorships. You know, she's bright. She's incredibly charismatic she's extremely talented she's funny uh and uh you know this hopefully doesn't sound you like you are a... describing me right yeah look, I'm, you know <laughs> and let's not let's face it she's also very very good looking you're still describing me <laughs> uh, all of those things she speaks mandarin which means that she opens up the chinese Damn market it. that's where the similarities <laughs> end um she's she's a marketeer's dream and she's just done something that, you know, is quite extraordinary. Uh, to repeat the, the two big salient statistics, first ever qualifier to win a Grand Slam tennis tournament 
uh, which means she she won 10 matches in a row to win the title and uh, she is um, uh, also the only player to win a Grand Slam without dropping a set well you, they are two very big statistics but the one I like is the fact she was the first British woman to uh, be in a final or win a, win a final win since, a final uh, Virginia Wade did 1977 yeah so I like that yeah all, all amazing at the age of 18 extraordinary uh, well I, I, I don't think um, Brian can claim to have those sort of statistics when we talk to Brian Price <laughs> I don't, uh, I don't, we don't know if Brian plays tennis he might do <laughs> Um, but uh, no, he has written a superb debut crime novel, Fatal Trade, which we were bowled over by when we got it. And uh, this builds on his contribution to the wider crime writing community in this country as a scientific consultant. He used to work for the Environment Agency at one stage. And uh, if you need something checking out in terms of science in your novels, forensics, that so, sort of thing. He's, a, he's your man. Lewis Hastings, we know you're listening because we know you go for a walk with your dog and you listen to us. We're going to give the chemist to Brian to check the science in your book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not that we don't believe you, but Brian has got an absolutely sharp eagle eye on anything to do with chemistry. So well, We don't doubt you for a moment, Lewis. No, but, no. but, you know, nice, nice to be reassured that you got it right. OK, let's talk to Brian Price. Brian Price, thank you so much for joining us on the Hobcast. And um, congratulations, a big week with the publication of Fatal Trade. Yes, thank you very much for having me. I'm really looking forward to actually seeing it in bookshops and the like. So are we. So are we. I mean, this is always the exciting bit, I think, for everyone involved is the after all the negotiations and all the work that goes into it. And um, I was just flicking through your acknowledgements. A lot of people have have contributed towards getting you here. Um, But let's let's start by just filling in a few of the blanks in terms of what people may or may not know about you um you uh, you've written before but not in the crime genre oh yeah i was an environmental consultant for a number of years and i did some work for friends of the earth and people like that so i think the first book was the friends of the earth guide to pollution which came out in about 1981 i think a slim volume summarizing what the situation with pollution was at the time. Um, It did quite well, but it's very, very dated. Um, I then wrote a book with a friend called C for Chemicals on household chemicals and what the hazards were. And this was following the E for additives, sort of meme, if you like, Um, and then did P for pollution, which was a more up-to-date and larger paperback. But after that, most of my writing was technical reports on things like energy from waste and clean power and what have you um, for a a business information unit based at the Financial Times. So it was not your sort of Smith's paperbacks. There were sort of hefty things which retailed at about 300 quid a pop. Um, But that was, you know, the the terms of published writing. I've also had pieces in The Guardian, New Scientist. Um, and some of my work at the Environment Agency involved writing and editing what other people have done. So plenty, you know, you, you, you know how to, you know, put words down. That's before you became a crime writer. But what about the inspiration that made you a crime writer? Uh, I mean, I'm picking up that Crime Fest plays a big part in that in that switch. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, the Environment Agency offices were opposite Bristol Central Library. And I used to sort of haunt the place in my lunchtime. And on one occasion, I came across this small poster stuck on a pillar saying Crime Fest for 
authors and um, readers of crime fiction. It was being held in a hotel just down the road. So I looked online, got one of the last tickets available and, and turned up because it looked like a, a fun weekend. I was half expecting the, the crime writers to be on a bit of a pedestal and you know, distant from everybody else. But in fact, I found everybody really approachable. Um, there was sort of Ian Rankin in the bar having a drink with everybody else and people swapping anecdotes and tales and so on. Uh, authors meeting fans, signing books, and really it was a tremendous atmosphere. Um, so I thought, yeah, well, this is fun. Maybe I could get involved somehow. Well, I'm a scientist by, by trade, if you like, and I often got annoyed by mistakes people made in crime fiction with things like chloroform and drugs and firearms and so on. So I set up this little website with a few basic tips on some of the mistakes to avoid. And my wife suggested I turned it into a book, which I duly did. And the result was crime writing, how to write the science, which um, the academic publishers Studymates put out. Um, it's been very well received by crime writers, a lot of whom have found it useful. Um, and I do advise them on a sort of separate basis. If people want something looked at or a question answered, I always try and help. Um, but then I thought, well, yeah, this is fun. Meeting all these crime writers, writing fiction. Could I do something like that? Um, so the idea fermented for a while. And then the uh, crime fiction coach um, Facebook group ran a competition for the best first sentence to start a crime novel. And I won. I won some chocolates and a, a 3 a.m. notebook. And uh, somebody said that they couldn't wait to read the story. Well, with that, I didn't have any option. I had to write the book, didn't I? Uh, so that's, <laughs> that's what I did. <laughs> um, and the result after you know, numerous tries with agents and so on is that uh, I was delighted when Rebecca said she liked it and Hobeck Books agreed to publish it. So that's where we are. That's where we are. I think, you know, now you've mentioned it, we're going to have to... Yeah, we do have We're going to have to preview the first line. The first line. Uh, which, uh, okay, not quite the first line. Well, it, well the first line of... of the, chapter one. Yeah. Which we're, yeah. Yeah, yeah. okay. I hadn't, I hadn't written a prologue or anything, but I thought that was a good way of starting. And then... That's right. So there's a prologue now, uh, but in chapter one, the first the line first of line. Fatal Trade by Brian Price, which is a DC Mel Cotton thriller. We'll talk about uh, DC Mel Cotton a little bit later. Um, but here it is. The small, grey-haired woman grimaced as she entered the police station, dragging a tartan shopping trolley containing her husband's head. <laughs> That's brilliant. And then it goes on. I'm going to read just one more line. What are you useless buggers going to do about this? She demanded, reaching into the trolley and heaving a cardboard box onto the counter. <laughs> Which hence the cover image. <laughs> I love it. Absolutely love it. Yeah, I was gripped from the first line. And uh, yeah, it's an absolute uh, so, zinger. Are you saying you just came up with a line with no idea where that line was going to go? It was just you thought this would be a great line for a book? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I sort of dabbled at short stories and, and not had a huge amount of success. But I was thinking of uh, doing something a bit different from a kind of locked room, who whodunit kind of thing. Um, and I just had this image initially, this, this elderly lady pulling a shopping trolley with her, her husband's head in it. And that led to all kinds of possibilities. I didn't, had no idea where the story was going to go. And I, I sort of parked it and then fiddled with the sentence and, and presented it in for this competition. But it could have been that she had killed him and was uh, suffering from dementia and was sort of wandering across the traffic lights on, on red and 
you know, the car stopped and she was taken away and arrested. Um, it could be that, as it turned out, it's a, a sort of grim warning from somebody. Um, could be that she didn't even know it was in there until she got to the, <laughs> the supermarket and suddenly trying to pour her spuds in the, the shopping trolley found there was something already in there. It could have gone in all sorts of directions, but once I started writing it and got it into the police station and the reaction of the police officers and the civilian support staff, I thought, well, yeah, it's got to be something like a warning or a threat or something. Um, and that's that's the way it developed. It's a, it's. I think what's so wonderful about it is it's dark, but it's also comic in a way. Yeah, exactly. It, you know, it's the absurdity of the of the situation. But I'm sure <laughs> there must be police officers out there who face something similar to that. Um, and, you know, and actually, I think anyone in public service of that type, the emergency services, gets pretty pretty used to seeing <laughs> I, heads. I know I did as a journalist. Well, I saw it once as a, no, well, no, I, 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 you, I beg to differ because if someone goes through a windscreen, that tends to be what happens. So I've, I've seen that on a, when I went to a road traffic accident before the, everyone got there, which was horrible. But I just thought that that'd be a great idea for a crime writing competition, wouldn't it? Give, give everybody the first line, any first line, give them a winning first line and they all have to go off and write from that mm. and see what they come up with. Maybe that's yeah. the name for this Christmas. Oh, it's too late for this next Christmas. Next Christmas anthology. Right. Actually, we can do it as a chain thing. You're right, Adrian. Anybody in the the sort of blue light trade is going to come across a lot of very grisly things, Um, whether it's charred corpses, RTCs, and the the people scattered across the motorway, um, or just the general sort of mayhem people inflict on each other after too many bevies, uh, and the paramedics have to sweep up the mess. So, yeah, you you have to be a very special person to to cope with this, I think. And... uh, I think that's true. I mean, my mum and my sister are both nurses and they've got a lot of grim stories. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I was the opposite. I was very squeamish as a child. <laughs> well, that uh, has killed the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, <that's... laughs> Getting back to the less bloody topics. Yes. Just thinking of all of the sort of well, severed heads and, and limbs. No, well, and... <laughs> you know, this is, we're talking about crime and, and, and actually, you know, I've just been reading... Um, uh, another of your Hobeck contemporaries' uh, latest novel, *The Chemist* by, which needs to go through your hands, I think. Yes, we need you. To uh, read Lewis Hastings, <laughs> which has a lot of detailed uh, science in it. Um, right. But again, you know, there's this sense within the team, the Orion team, that he has created with Jack Cade at the head, head of it, with Jason Roberts and all that sort of thing, um, that they deal with these horrific situations on a regular basis and what gets them through is, is, is a sort of camaraderie and a dark humour. That's like quite interesting because Lewis, um, he mentioned uh, just last week that somebody had criticised him and they said, well, your books are full of banter. Why are they full of banter? You're dealing with these very serious, dark themes. And Lewis replied with, you know, but that's real life. That's what it's like when you're working with these, you know, very serious, quite dark and macabre yeah. things. I think he said, said, presumably you've never served in the forces or something. But yeah, gallows humour keeps you going, whether you're a pathologist or a a detective attending post-mortems or the aftermath of fights. So people do make jokes, which you would think are very callous, but it's really a protective mechanism. In terms of your working life, I mean, being an environmental scientist and um you know de- dealing with pollution i mean you must have seen some some things that were you know from the point of view of having empathy for the environment some terrible things because i i know i've i've been to a couple of um spillages in my time when i was working down your neck of the woods down in devon um oh. you know where the 
the the tin the river tin or the the x or whatever something would pour into it and then you'd have all these thousands of dead fish and uh you know seabirds and all sorts of things being 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 affected did that ever sort of affect you I, w- I was more office and policy based. Um, I was doing things like writing permits for major installations, um, some of which were just sort of starting up. I was working on monitoring air pollution from power stations, um, international trade in waste, and then some sort of editing um, publication sort of work as well. So I was, I was jumping around a bit. I wasn't an inspector actually going out and clearing up the mess, but I was working behind the scenes in- enabling people to do that. But you know, I, one thing I do remember is uh, going on a trip to Sweden back in the early 80s and there was this beautifully pristine lake um, in the middle of the forest and it was totally dead. And it was totally dead because of the acid emissions from power stations in Britain and Germany blowing over to Sweden and falling in the lakes and killing the fish basically, um, which is quite eerie because you think something like that, you know, beautiful pristine conditions uh, would be teeming with life, but no, dead as a doornail. And in terms of, you know, clearly science is a motivation, but also that concern for the environment. What percentage was your motivation in going into that industry and um, that side of, you know, the regulation side of things? Uh, Well, it was television originally, um, which probably strikes a a chord with you, Adrian. Um, Around about 1969-70, there was a TV documentary called Due to Lack of Interest, Tomorrow Has Been Cancelled. Well, disregarding the grammatical error, that was a, a, ter- a terrifying documentary. And I, I could see that you know, we were heading for a resource crisis, uh, a pollution crisis. And this was before there was anything said much about acid rain or cri- climate change or indeed the, the ozone layer. But there was just this tremendous upsurge in pollution. So I joined uh, Friends of the Earth which at the time was sort of fairly embryonic, uh, ended up working um, in the Bristol office, one of the first people to work locally in the the regions, um, pursuing environmental campaigning. Um, I I did start doing a chemistry degree at Bristol, but left to to work in Bristol for Friends of the Earth, um, and eventually went back. I did a biology teaching certificate, uh, and then an OU degree. And the thing which I liked about the OU is that the courses were very relevant. They were not sort of sterile ivory tower stuff. They were very much about, well, a course in organic chemistry was actually looking at the problems of lead in petrol and the damage it was doing, which most conventional university courses probably weren't at the time. So everything there was had a very strong environmental bias. Um, I got a degree. I did various other jobs as an environmental consultant. Um, when I left the, the pharmacy where I was analysing drugs. Um, one of the things I did was to go around the country in a van borrowed from, from British Leyland, collecting playground dust and analysing it for lead. Which wow. Wow. One of the factors which helped get lead out of petrol in the UK. Um, it was led by a very uh, amazing campaigner called Des Wilson, who was behind Shelter, among other things, in the, the 60s. And um, one of the issues with what was I did but there were plenty of other people involved and the health aspects were brought to the fore as well but it was a, a small part in getting lead out of petrol so I've, I've been very much concerned about the environment ever since I was 18 um, and there we go you know I, I, I got the job in the environment agency having taught environmental type courses for the OU for a long time 
when these jobs came up, I thought, yeah, that's where I want to be. Um, and I had a great time. I mean, I think it's changed a lot over the years. The, the complexion of the government has changed, um, whereas in the past, the chairman could say, no, you mustn't build another runway at Heathrow because it would cause so much air pollution that you'd be way over any kind of legal limit. Um, nowadays, they can't make any kind of public statement about what's wrong with government policy. They just have to sort of do as they're told. And they're moving to a new environment bill, which looks as though it will be something of a travesty. It's, it's not good. Um, they are to making noises about climate change. Um, whether the prime minister will live up to his word, there's a good idea, uh, is what remains to be seen. But we do have the climate change um, conference in Glasgow coming up and we'll see whether they can actually put into force some of the, the rhetoric which they've been banding around. And I read this week that, is it Algeria? It's the last country to have leaded petrol. This, this, it was banned this week or something, I think, in the world. I didn't see that, but I do know that the company which was making it in Britain was um, involved in a scandal where it was bribing the government of another country to allow it to still sell leaded petrol. That's yeah. And I remember when I was, my first car was a Triumph 2000, uh, built in the yeah. early 70s, chocolate brown. And of course, I had to go around finding leaded petrol for this, this old, <laughs> my mm. grandmother's old car. Then, of course, I did something stupid and drove into the back of some static traffic on London Bridge and uh, <laughs> the car was no more. But uh, I think in the long term, the, yeah, envir the environment thing, benefits, way, yeah. so, <laughs> even yeah. if the five vehicles I smashed. That's called a happy accident. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there are things you could have done. You could have the valve seats hardened, which prolong the life of the engine under unleaded petrol. And you can get the higher octane petrol, which is just refined a bit more. Um, for those older cars or specialist cars, which need something with a bit more oomph, um, but no car needs to run on leaded petrol, except perhaps some very antique jobs, which are not really around. No, indeed. No, indeed. Um, you know, but uh, I mourn that car. Well, my first car was a Ford Fiesta van, and it ran on unleaded petrol. But I am two <laughs> years younger than you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, but you learned to drive a little bit quicker than I did. <laughs> um uh, it's interesting. I mean, it, it, that environmental awareness period, uh, when it sort of became a thing in that late 60s, early 70s. I'm just funny because I've just been watching uh, a John Pertwee Doctor Who story, <laughs> The Green oh. Death, which yeah. is set in the mines of South Wales. And yeah. uh, there they're talking about uh, petrochemical pollution and, and, you know, the green maggots and all this sort of thing running around. Was that the one where they have but a it's really, flag on really... string being pulled towards him? Yeah. It's a yeah. fantastically <laughs> prescient tale, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, you know, it's wonderful how, I mean, you know, they took risks in those days. I mean, nowadays, of course, Doctor Who, every single story is sort of trying to ram something down your throat. But on this occasion, um, it did it with a great deal of... Um, of a great deal of subtlety, actually. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it, they made it different enough so you, you couldn't directly relate to it, but there was a relationship. Well, they had the debate. I mean, the, the, the fact is, the people who are doing the pollution um, at least are acknowledging, you know, that there is an effort to uh, to acknowledge that they try and do something about it, uh, and unless it's the really, really bad guys at the top. But um, <laughs> no, it's it's an interesting um, timepiece, really. Um, let's let's move on back to, to fatal trade then, and. Uh, you know, inspired by your top first line and, and filling it out. But how long has that process taken from, from submitting that first line 
winning that competition to the point where we are now with the publication of the book? Uh, difficult to be precise. I mean, uh, that I think the competition was at the end of November 2019. Um, and I started some, some writing not too long afterwards. Um, I got a draft by the spring of 2020, I think. Uh, I sent it off for a critique through Crime Fiction Coach who, and, and Louise Voss, who gave a nice quote for the cover, made some really helpful suggestions about how to improve things like characters and so on. Um, so I took those on board. Um, my wife read it and she's incredibly helpful. She's got a very good eye for detail, very supportive and also um, knows when something's going to work or not. Um, so she went through it and then I revised it um, and I think it was around about June I started submitting it to, to people. Um, I think I sent it to you around about the autumn of 20. Yeah I think that's right. And um, at that point it was it had been through various revisions and, and you you liked it. <laughs> we did. Yeah, much we did. to my delight. No we, we were hooked and um that's always a good sign for us because, as you know, when we read a submission, we read it separately. And if, Re if Rebecca's got to it first, she has a twinkle in her eye <laughs> when, when she presses the manuscript into my hand and goes, I always say to you, I, I won't say, no, I'm not going to say anything, but I think you should read this, is what she says, which is usually a sign of, you know, we should, we should be thinking about signing whoever it is. So um, but it's really difficult not to give anything away, though, especially <laughs> if I'm really keen for you to read it. Absolutely. <laughs> Mind you, you're still upset with me that I gave away the one of the, the key uh, developments in, in The Chemist, which you're proofreading and I've just read through. Yeah, so uh, he does this. You, you do this quite a lot, actually. If we're both, <laughs> <laughs> if we're both reading a submission or, or we're editing or proofreading one of our books, he'll just say, oh, at, at near the end, this happens. And I say, well, I haven't got there yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. What a killjoy I am. But no, let, um, in, in terms of uh, that process then, I mean, Louise Voss obviously was a key figure in, in, in developing your craft. What, what areas did you uh, work harder at, perhaps, when you were writing the novel? What, what, what came naturally and what, was the, what were the things that were a little harder? Um, I suppose character was the, the area I had most difficulty with. I think the plot, to some extent... I would say it wrote itself. I think that's a bit um, over-egging it. I mean, I had various ideas about what might happen and, and they fitted together. And then something happened, you think, well, you know, what's going to happen next? So we had the issue with the, uh, the threat from the head in the box. Well, that didn't have any effect on, on the person threatened. So what did the villains do next? How did they take that further? And if this failed, what would they do then? And who was behind it? Um, and then I had to think, well, you know, there must be something more going on in the background. Then there was the parallel plot about the, the, the woman in the prologue uh, coming down to seek revenge on, on somebody. How did she get near to the uh, person she was targeting? Um, how did she make the transition from someone who'd been trafficked and abused to someone who was really powerful um, and knew what she was doing? Um, and they, they seem to follow more or less naturally, but then you sort of put in embellishments to show how, you know, 
how is she com so competent? What did she do when she had to take action against somebody? Little bits like that fill in. Um, but making the characters more than just, I suppose, ciphers was a bit mm. tricky. I, I decided quite early on that um, Mel Cotton would have a dark sense of humour. So, you know, at one point when they're looking for um, going off to talk to somebody, she says, well, I'll head off there. Um, <laughs> yeah. So that again, that's a sort of gallows humour, which we talked about earlier. Um, so it was a question of getting the, the story down and then going back and saying, well, how can I make this person more human? Um, so I gave um, one of the characters a, a newborn baby. Um, my wife had had a newborn baby and he was constantly coming in smelling of baby sick and so on. <laughs> uh, another one who had a, a vintage car, which plays a, a part in, um, a minor part in one, one of the incidents. Um, and then somebody else who's got a crush on Mel Cotton. Um, and where's that going to go? Where does that develop? Um, so yes, it was it was a question of sort of fitting in there. Um, then why have you got the DI running an investigation? There must be a reason for that because something like this would normally be run by a DCI. Um, so I worked out a reason for that. And um, that again has repercussions throughout the other parts of the book. So I guess I guess working hardest was on the, on the people side. Um, the technical bits and the, you know, the firearm stuff and that was not difficult the the way the story developed was okay I and mean, I, I did realize at one point that there was a little bit more substance needed um and something a bit more original which is why i put in the uh the source of income which was a little bit more than would be expected from some run-of-the-mill drug dealers um which i won't want to spoil. no no, no. <laughs> yeah definitely a f spoiler flag going up at this point yeah um and then I fitted that in and that led to a bit of character development for one of the, the other people. So it, it kind of eventually the jigsaw was more or less assembled and um, then, you know, people commented. Oh, I was supposed to be more conflict. Someone said I should put in more conflict. So I introduced a rather unpleasant character um, who created a bit of a, a stir in the, the local police station and generally made a nuisance of himself perfect no i mean you know naturally the characters are, are very strong and that come through so clearly that process works what do you enjoy most about putting something like this together and, and writing a book like this what, what what was the uh what were the areas where you found you know the real pleasure getting a, a plot which works um and and just having things running along ticking over nicely and then chucking in the odd bit of either humor and, and a bit of humanity because there are i don't want to give away any particular scenes but there are one or two lines i've put in which i'm really quite pleased about um where someone says something or there's a kind of minor incident or even possibly a fairly major incident which in some cases i suppose might reflect my views because they i think it's difficult for a writer to not let some of their own feelings get get through into a book um and when it all seems to fit together and work and i suppose what you always have to do of course is to set the manuscript aside for a while um and then come back to it a few days later and i, I make a point of sitting in a different room room to read hard copy of something you know, before it's ready to go off and if i read through it i think yeah i'd read this then that gives me enormous pleasure. If I think, oh, I'm 
borders to hell with this, then I think, well, something's got to be done. Um, but yeah, I think um, reading something which I think, well, if someone else had written it, I'd enjoy it. This is probably um, a tremendous feeling. That's good. Yeah. Well, what I was going to ask, and I was just thinking about when you answered that question is, is do you read a lot of crime yourself? Does that feed into um, the way you write? An enormous amount, yeah. I mean, I, apart from, I suppose, a certain a time in the late 60s where I was reading a lot of fantasy and some sci-fi, uh, some of it very good, things like Dune, um, some of it perhaps less so, some of the more dated sci-fi stuff, um, and some good, good fantasy as well. And obviously, one has to speak up for Terry Pratchett, who I didn't come into until about the 80s, I think, uh, who was absolutely fantastic. But... Um, yeah, I've read crime novels ever since I was about 10, starting with Leslie Charteris's Saint books. Um, and I read, I read Golden Age stuff. I read some of the sort of grittier thrillers. I like people like Mike Craven, uh, David Mark, Paul Finch. Uh, for police procedurals, there's Lee Russell, um, Angela Marsons. Kate Rose's book set on the silly are wonderful because of those tremendous um, echoing of the place there, which is places I've been. Um, so yeah, a huge range of, of crime stuff. Um, and those, you know, not discriminating against other writers, those are the writers who come to mind who I particularly like, but there are many more, you know. Um, I've, I've read Agatha Christie, I've read, um, I particularly like Lock Room Mysteries, actually. John Dixon Carr was a, an expert at this, so I like a lot of those, and some of the modern ones which, uh, which crop up too. Mm. What about the the phenomena surrounding TV crime at the moment in the sense that I think we've talked about it before when we were uh, negotiating, you know, the, your, your thoughts on, on line of duty, for instance, and, and how, how, how often um, to, to coin, well, not to coin a phrase, but to, to, to repeat a phrase, they jump the shark. In have the pursuit watched, of drama. Have you watched the submarine thing? Have you watched Vigil <laughs> on a Sunday night? I'm, not yet, not yet. I'm say, with things like that, um, we tend to save them up and watch them in a sequence, although we didn't do that with Line of Duty because it was far too gripping. Line of Duty is, I think, one of the best crime dramas around. It's also completely unrealistic um, <laughs> because the police don't investigate themselves. It's an independent unit. Um, you wouldn't have people just popping in and out or going undercover like that. It's a highly trained thing. Um, some of the things they've done with firearms are quite ridiculous. But what the hell? It's so bloody good, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, was, we, we did from... watch it. Well, I did. You'd seen it before, hadn't you? But, yeah. Um, there was one Sunday, and he said, "Oh, let's watch Line of Duty from the start." And I hadn't seen it, and I think we watched it every night for three weeks mm-hmm. and got through yeah. the whole lot. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the performances from these people and, and the plotting is terrific. And you know, I've seen Jed Mercurio speak, and he's 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 very good. I also liked his um, medical dramas, but. No, it, it's, a, it's a different police universe, but within that, it is, is superb. Um, other TV things, um, Traces was, uh, it was originally on Alibi, but it's, um, it turned up on uh, BBC or ITV, I can't remember. One, one of the normal channels, anyway. Mm. Um, it's a, a young forensic scientist, sensibly in Dundee, uh, getting mixed up with you know, what happened to her parents and so on. Um, that was forensically terrific, partly because it was uh, co-written or involved with Val McDermott and 
uh, one of the pathologists who advises her, whose name I have very great difficulty in pronouncing, Nick MacDave or something, Irish mm -hmm. name, works in, in England or Scotland, I think. Um, and that was really first class in terms of forensic stuff. Silent Witness, it started off as drivel. I mean, having a, a someone of about 22 who's a forensic anthropologist carrying out PMs on you know, home office PMs, which just didn't happen. It's got better. They've got the science better. And again, it's, it's drama. Um, Midsummer Murders is just entertainment. You just the way they trample over a crime scene and <laughs> <laughs> pay no regard to police procedure. No, we watch them because they're fun, but we don't expect any kind of chiming with reality there. No, that, 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 that's fair enough. And to be fair, I mean, watching Vigil, um, I've uh, been sort of scratching my head as to how big is this submarine in terms of the amount of room they seem to have to move around. Well, it makes me want to go on one. I really want no, to go on a submarine. trust me, you really do not. I mean, <laughs> no, so, I mean, it's supposed to be the, um, the vigilant class of, of submarines that they currently have carrying yeah. the nuclear uh, deterrent. Um, and yes, it's a vessel of what 480 feet long and some 35, 40 feet wide. But you know, the sets are huge. Surely it's like being in here, <laughs> being in a submarine. Uh, well, with a bit more sort of things to bang into because <laughs> they've been interviewing um submariners who've said, Yeah, it's kind of a little bit, yeah, it's reminiscent. But the fact is, there are many, many more things hanging off the, the walls. Um, and suspended from the ceiling for you to bump into. Well, actually, to me, it looks more like Star Trek, the set of Star yeah, Trek. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because no one's actually seen, outside of being a submariner, no one's actually seen inside these submarines. It's all closely guarded secret, so they're having to sort of make yeah. it up on the fly. Uh, yeah. But that's that's my number one concern uh, with the story so far. But, um, you know, I'll, I'll look for that, forward to that conversation over yeah, the time, Brian. I was going to say, we'd like to know what you think when you get to it. <laughs> yeah, oh, I don't know an awful lot about submarines myself, um, but uh, I do know they're very cramped and every bit of space is used up because you want to make it as small as possible to avoid radar or ASDIC or whatever. And, um, still cram as much kit as you need, which means that uh, to work in one of those and spend months sort of under the sea, you have to be a very special sort of... <laughs> sailor to do it absolutely no I, I had the um a few years ago I went to see hms ocelot which is uh, a 1960s uh hunter killer submarine or actually was used for covert operations and uh you know it's not dissimilar to what you see uh the preserve u-boats i mean you know really mm. very tight conditions and um this sort of all pervasive even over the years and i'm sure they cleared it up smell of stale sweat uh, from from you know submariners, it's not a comfortable experience. Anyway, we <laughs> we've digressed into into the world of vigil. <laughs> um, so, are there any times when I mean, it's interesting you say you can compartmentalize and, and and see it for what it is as entertainment? Because when I watch news programs, which is you know obviously my working background, uh, I can't help but scream at the television when I, when when I see them. <laughs> falling into the cliche traps of the sort of shots they use on certain types of story um i mean for instance there's no business report the bbc have ever done in the last 15 years that hasn't had the uh, the, gra <laughs> the graphic of the banknotes dropping from the ceiling uh <laughs> floated over some footage they do this on every single thing it makes me swear uh, I, I don't know how you can given your, your scientific interest and knowledge you know when you see it going awry you can't you, you know you can still enjoy it for entertainment because i can't well, I don't think the news is entertaining, is it? <laughs> no, not often. I think it's what you're expecting. Um, 
I think there are plenty of occasions where I've seen someone say, well, why didn't they ask me? I could have told them how to get that right. <laughs> um, and, and, but some people do do a lot of work. I mean, and watching the bridge, which again, it's terrific acting and, and the yeah. portrayal of, of Southern Orn is, is, I suppose, world-class acting, whatever you look at. Um, I've no idea how normal police procedure works in Sweden and Denmark, so I just had to take that as at face value. Um, they do make some mistakes on some of the science, on the toxicology, um, but they're at least they're looking for something different from the usual sort of arsenic cyanide kind of things. Um, yeah, I think you have to, to be a bit detached. And I mean, if you talk to people like Graham Barclay on police procedure, they have to take shortcuts because if they followed it like an ordinary police investigation, you'd have hours and hours of people looking up stuff on computers, riffling through papers, filling out forms, applying for overtime and doing all kinds of stuff, which is remotely completely undramatic. So they have to, to take shortcuts. Um, same with toxicology results. You know, you can take weeks to get some of the more obscure things back from the lab. They have to telescope it, but where you get something like a corpse is found at 10 o'clock, the PM's done at lunchtime and they've got all the toxicology <laughs> back by tea time. You think, well, no. It could be a bit more realistic on that. <laughs> True enough. It's it's interesting. I think there is a there is a, a movement within British crime fiction writing to get that those elements right. I mean, I'm now reading a lot more. Oh well, we won't see those results for for two weeks. Or well, in the meantime, what are we going to do? Um, yeah. Which yeah. I think, but that wouldn't happen in in television with the, or indeed film where you know everything has to be condensed anyway. And I mean, it's all a shorthand. Yeah, yeah, it does. But I mean, interestingly, science is catching up with this to some extent because um, you know, going back, I know seven or eight years, you, you'd be waiting for perhaps a week for DNA samples to be processed and the results to come back. Then it came down to sort of 48 hours. They now have machines um, which they're developing, which can give you a result in two hours. Now, it might not be good enough for evidence in court, but if you're looking to exonerate someone or follow up a suspicion, then you've got some evidence there which you've got grounds for arrest at least. Um, so science is catching up a bit, but uh, it's still going to take a hell of a long time to find traces of aconite in someone's sandwich which they've eaten three three hours ago that kind of thing it's awesome isn't it i mean in terms of keeping abreast of all these developments and the the new technology and the the way that that's affecting procedure uh clearly you mentioned graham bartley who's a friend of the show obviously and has worked with a number of our authors and deep you know is a sort of stalwart of the entire community really um mm. but in terms of keeping your knowledge up to date how do you do that browsing into the scientific literature sometimes keeping an eye on the papers um, and then following up stories which appear um, and I mean I, I do quite a few uh, inquiries from authors and if they're asking about something then I'll check that I've got the most up-to-date information before giving a response um, because there's no point giving them something that's out of date especially if it's going to be a year before their book actually comes out. So in a sense yeah your knowledge uh, and you know the, what you seek out is is guided sometimes by the people who who, who call on you. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Mike Craven asked me about the origin of the universe the other day. Um, <laughs> I, did, uh, I did an astronomy course <laughs> was part of an OU degree a long time ago, and I vaguely remember. But I, I certainly checked to make sure that I wasn't going to feed him something which was nonsense. 
That's a big question. <laughs> That's a cheeky one, Mike. Well, it's like yeah, a, a Rebecca's um, random question. I, I don't want to give a give give it away, but um, you probably know he has a character called Tilly, who's a, a, a scientific genius and so on. And there is a, some dialogue coming up where she's talking about what existed just after the Big Bang. Um, and he asked me to check something, and I did. Brilliant. Brilliant. Now that, that, that actually leads to my random question, interestingly enough. Are we ready for it? I don't know. Yeah. Okay, you, go ahead. Okay. Rebe okay, shall I give you the big build-up? It is related to the Big Bang. It's time for this week's Rebecca's Random Question. Do you believe there is life beyond Earth? Yeah, but, you know, Jim, not as we know it, as the saying goes. I, I think it, the statistics are, are there. There are so many planets and so many galaxies that for this to be the only planet where there is life of some sort of sort is, is you know, just stretching the bounds of credibility. There must be some sort of life out uh, in other places. Whether it's anything like what we can see at the moment uh, on, on this planet, anybody's guess is evolution could go in all sorts of different directions i think it'd probably be based on carbon but i mean i'm not enough of a uh, an evolutionary chemist to be able to say that maybe there could be silicon-based life forms um under different planetary conditions i don't know but th there are bound to be other planets out there which fit into what they call the goldilocks zone not too hot not too cold for life of some sort to develop but what it would look like you know it's, it's probably not going to look like Klingons in Star Trek or any of the other sort of sci-fi. Or tribbles. Or tribbles, yeah. Or, or triffids or whatever, yeah. Oh, triffids, now we're talking. No, I love tribbles. I want there to be tribbles somewhere. Really? Yeah, they're cute. Well, I look at daffodils and think triffids every time I see them. <laughs> <laughs> Just baby ones. <laughs> I definitely believe that there's life beyond the Earth. Because I, I just, uh, you know, similar reasons and also... Yeah. We, we can't possibly know because we can't go beyond a certain distance in our lifetime. Well, it won't surprise you to learn that I did ask a certain very famous professor when... Oh, him. <laughs> this is before he gave up on me as a, as a, as a, as a pathetic uh, intellectual specimen. Uh, Stephen Hawking. Um, wow. So many, many, many years ago, I briefly dated his daughter when she was in her teens. We were in our teens. And I did ask him that question and uh, I got a very lengthy answer, which takes a long time for him to program. So <laughs> we, we sort of wait half an hour. He should be quite flattered then. He I time, so. Yeah, he did. And then he, then he called me all sorts of things after that. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I won't do the voice. One day I will. After... Well, bloody Scotland, you've promised. Oh, yeah. Get drunk in the bar and do my... <laughs> you like Michael <laughs> Yeah, I will speak like Michael Caine. No, uh, yeah, that's the other thing I do when I'm drunk. Um, no, I mean... <laughs> It's it, yeah, he's he was pretty convinced, um, uh, but he couldn't I, scientifically sort of uh, you know put his name on it. A friend of mine claims her sister has met an alien. She lives in uh, Brazil, right? And she said that this the, the spaceship parked outside the the house, yeah, or sort of hovered outside. I'm the loving house. this. <laughs> <laughs> and the sister was a child, uh, sort of eight nine years old, and she looked out the window and she could see through a window in this this craft of some sort a creature staring at her. Right. And then it disappeared. Wow. And she swears it's true. She and absolutely she, swears it's she, true. She wasn't probed in any way or any orifice. No, or... no, 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 nothing like that. <laughs> okay, fair <laughs> enough. Probably a CIA helicopter. 
could be, especially in Brazil, I, mind if, you. I mean, there's all sorts of if things. You've got this, if you've got this sort of large craft hovering outside the house, it's going to be exerting quite a lot of force and dissipating energy, keeping it hovering. So why didn't the house fall down? Well, yeah, but you're putting the, the laws of physics as we know them on the... But you cannot change the laws of physics. <laughs> <laughs> well said. They might have different laws of physics on a different planet. Or in Brazil. <laughs> Not in Brazil, no. Portuguese laws of physics. No, I don't yeah. think that. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of random things that happen in Brazil. And uh, I have to say, yeah. having been on the beaches of Rio on several occasions, thanks to sporting events, I must admit that gravity seems to play a, a very strange part in in, uh, in some of the things you see there. What way? <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I've, I've seen uh, that film with Michael. Well, I, I leave it to the imagination. But I, I need a little bit to go on. Okay. Uh, well, ha things hanging out that shouldn't, and things staying in place that shouldn't. You talking about aliens again? No, I'm talking about. Oh, he's just mimed, so I've got it now. <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> How did we get to this? We let's let's get back to, to Brian's career rather than talking about aliens. Well, and, that was a random question, so we, did, and, we had to go off on a tangent. <laughs> and, and you know, ample cleavages and what sorts of. Anyway, um, in terms of where the, the characters you've created go next, mm. is there a fatal trade follow-up in in the offing? Yep, there is. Um, what can I say without spoiling things? Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean. The major characters in the, apart from the villains, in um, Fatal Trade are very much present in the next one. I'm thinking vaguely of calling it Fatal Hate. Um, it involves, among other things, um, racial violence and uh, tension, people stirring things up, funded by uh, illegal drugs importation. Um, okay, we've had drugs before, but they're, they're pretty much everywhere. Um, and there's also um, a very devious MP uh, who people might consider to be an, am an amalgamation of some of the characters which grace the House of Commons at the moment. Um, but I'm not attributing them to any particular party because that would be too partisan, but people can form what conclusions they like. Um, and he's involved in various unpleasant activities. Um, and we've got a, a combination of, I suppose, police procedural stuff and some more exciting things happening as well. You know, people in peril and Mel Cotton rises to the occasion again, as you'd expect. Um, so yes, that uh, that's going through the, the review process for my wife at the moment and should be ready to submit to you pretty soon. Yay. Yeah, I look forward to it. I think uh, I think she, we're now recognising that uh, your wife is becoming the ultimate arbiter. Can we send her all the uh, Hobart manuscripts? <laughs> <laughs> There's a few. <laughs> yeah. No, it sounds fantastic. Well, we're really looking forward to uh, to receiving that, and and clearly, yeah, you know, I mean, in the in the nearest future, being in a position to publish it too. One of the the sort of common comments of the Heart team who've um, read Fatal Trade is, "Can't wait for the next one." Mm. Well, I don't want to keep them waiting, do I? <laughs> You've got to do it for your public. Yeah, crack on. <laughs> <laughs> in terms of, uh, as we draw this interview to a close, um, how do you think you'll feel that day that it, you know, when it finally emerges, as you know, a day from now, from uh, from a week where tomorrow, we're, a, a week tomorrow, I beg your pardon, yeah, when we're publishing this this podcast. Well, really excited, obviously. Um, 
to move into, a, into the fiction field, which was was different for me. I mean, when you're writing science, which um, effectively I've done before, um, you want nice, clean, linear development of a concept from sort of basics into something a bit more complicated, taking things which can be fairly abstruse in some cases and making them intelligible to people who are well, not daft, but don't have a scientific background. And of course, many writers have a, an English literature background, so um, wouldn't have come across some of the scientific ideas which you need to perhaps have a, a nodding acquaintance with for some of these things. Um, so writing in that sort of sense um, is fairly straightforward. You do your research, you find, you make sure you know what you're talking about, you get it down in, in understandable English. With fiction, it's got to come from your imagination. Yes, you, you've got to create. In, in my case, I create a new town uh, where all the action takes place. You create characters who don't exist, although there's all the occasional references, and everything that happens comes from your own head. Um, and to see that process being appreciated by the people in the Heart Readers team and others who've looked at it is absolutely thrilling. So when it's actually there, and hopefully in the, the local water stands, I'll be really tremendously excited. Yeah, we can't wait. Congratulations on Fatal Trays and for the future. And thank you for uh, being part of our Hobeck family. We're extremely grateful. Thank yeah. you. And thank you very much for this interview. We've, uh, we've learned a lot. Yeah, I know. And, <laughs> and we've got me thinking about aliens. <laughs> Don't no, talk to any strange a, aliens. A <laughs> <laughs> Brian, thanks so much. Okay, cheers. Wonderful to speak to Brian Price. Congratulations on Fatal Trade. And that is available the day after this podcast goes live. And Brian, again, like all previous interviewees that we've spoken to, coped very well with my random question. Well done, Brian. Yep, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, now, next week, we're going to be throwing a load of random questions, I imagine. Uh, I, I think I've got to think of quite a few questions, haven't I? Because we're hoping to be talking to quite a few people. Well, we're going to bloody Scotland. Scotland is a beautiful country, how dare you? <laughs> the festival, not the country itself. Uh, we're going to Stirling for bloody Scotland. We've talked about it for a bit. We've got Mark Whiteman in line for the debut uh, prize for uh, Best Scottish Crime Debut of yeah, the Year. And we're going to get to meet Mark for the first time too, so that's quite exciting. Yeah, we met Ollie for the first time today as well, Ollie Jarvis. So we're gradually getting round to the... Uh, the, the list of, of authors. And giving them all a mug each. <laughs> Absolutely. We're out of mugs before, before you know it. So we'll be at Bloody Scotland and the, the who's who, of course, of Scottish crime fiction writing will be there. Uh, our uh, esteemed friend Ian Rankin amongst them, but we hope to grab Val McDermott for, uh, for a chat as well and uh, the many other wonderful names there. We're also going to be seeing Tina Baker, who has uh, moved from uh, working... Uh, as uh, an expert on many things in the media through to being a personal trainer and now a crime novelist as well and so uh, we're looking forward to From meeting soap her Soap to Blood Soap to Blood, yeah, <laughs> she, uh, yeah. She'll be a lot of fun So one of our guests to come yeah. on the Hopcast she, She's agreed to talk to us, hasn't she? So I'm really looking forward to that Yeah, we're re absolutely And um, you know, I used to see her around a bit at Five Live back in the day uh, but never had the courage to speak to her because she always seemed so confident. But she confided in me that actually that's very much a front and that she's quite a private person, really. Um, and I kind of understand that because I can perform doing this podcast performance in many ways, but withdraw 
Yeah, and and um, you know, I, I'm similar, but not quite. I'm not quite as good at performing as you, but I I do relate to that. And and I was saying to you earlier today that when we went to see Ollie, you know, you you were very able to talk very eloquently and intelligently about all sorts of subjects. But I know that you know you also need that sort of period after doing something like that when you just need to sort of mm. reflect and withdraw and. Yeah, not so easy. Um, uh, we've again, it's been another busy week. Uh, I finished proof reading Linda Huber's latest book, Act of Silence. Loved it, uh, and that will be out before very long. Uh, also, been working in the audio studio on uh, Malcolm Holling Drake's Catch as Catch Can, trying to polish up my Merseyside accents. And we've been watching episodes of Brookside to help you do that. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, Harry Enfield's sketch, sketches of, of the Scousers. Calm down. I'm not, yeah, I don't think calm down. Help. No, it's not really what we want for, for, for that. Uh, and also working on uh, one or two other little bits of project in there as well, just getting the studio bedded down. And it's really valuable resource now to be able to go and work whenever I can. Yeah, it's great. I mean, yeah, you see, you can now sort of chop and change between. Hobeck work and um, audio work and I think it's making you more productive in a strange way, you know. Yeah, and I like to be able to chop and change. Yeah, you are a chop and changer. Yeah, uh, you know, I'll put in two, three hours of good concentration and then I'll need to do something else. Yeah, no, I I, I understand that. I mean, I've been um, editing The Chemist, which I'm thoroughly enjoying, I have to say, Lewis. You know, it's... Um, but I can only do an hour or two at a time because it's such a high level of concentration when you're editing a book because you are looking for anything you can find, any missing comma, any extra space or anything like that, as well as reading for sense at more than two hours, and I would, I would not be so effective. No, that's tough. The kids have gone back to school, which um, has been you know, a mixed blessing because they're coming home knackered and grumpy <laughs> and hungry. <laughs> Uh, but, you know, they're back and uh, that'll settle down into a rhythm in the second week, I'm sure. Yeah. And uh, they're all at the same school now, so it's much easier for me. I just um, park the car and throw them out. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> so, we've got a busy week. We've got quite a lot of work to do with our um, new marketing uh, uh, partner in Matthew J. Holmes, who was on the programme uh, a couple of weeks ago. Yes, Sue Shepherd's Swindles is now out. If you haven't got it already, it's getting great reviews. Oh yeah, selling it's well. Really and pleasing. Yeah, great. absolutely. And everyone loves to hate Vincent or <laughs> hates to love Vincent. I mean, I, one of the two. Anyway, it's uh, that's very gratifying. But uh, we continue to work hard at Hobeck Books. Check out our website www.hobeck.net, where you can find out all the details of all our authors, all of our books, get discounted paperbacks and um, generally get involved in our world. We are still open for submissions, dare I say it. We've had a mountain of submissions so far. Yeah, so even today, while we've been out, I think we've had two today, so I think that makes 28 in September. That's quite a few to to read through, so, you know, bear with us. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, bear with us. You know, I I always respond straight away just to say, I've got your submission, but, you know, it's going to take us a little while to... (laughs) <laughs> to read through them. It's, um, yeah, we're always going to get some noises off when we're standing on a bridge like this. To remind you where we are, we're at Nutsford service station overlooking the traffic below, reliving your youth a little bit. It is, we, 
Um, so my dad's idea of a good day out on a Saturday afternoon, we had three kids to entertain, he would take us to either this services or Keel services to stand on the bridge. Keel services, they've got fruit machines on the bridge, or they did in the 70s anyway. And so he'd give us all 30p each to spend on the fruit machines. <laughs> oh, you lived. <laughs> Brilliant. watch the cars for an hour. Yeah, I'd be taking them on a Sunday afternoon to watch King's College Choir sing Evensong. <laughs> Uh, slightly different up- upbringing. But anyway, there we go. So, it uh, just remains for us to say we'll s- join you from Scotland next week. Thanks again to our guest this week, Brian Price. But uh, we really hope you have a wonderful creative week. And thank you for this- joining us on The Hobcast. You've been listening to The Hobcast from Hobeck Books with Adrian Hobart and Rebecca Collins. You can find the show notes at our website, www.hobeck.net. You can also use the exclusive Hobcast discount code for any of the products at our Hobeck online store. Just enter the code HOBCAST20 for a 20% discount. Don't forget to subscribe to the Hobcast and feel free to contact us with any feedback. Until next time, remember our motto, Trad Values, Indie Spirit. Indie Spirit.